Alex. I'm a soon-to-be-finished PhD student, Yay. I guess. Yeah. Um, I am in the School of English. I write, generally speaking, on race and higher education uh, in a US and UK context. Um, my thesis looks more specifically at sort of um, the relationship between architecture, race um, and higher education um, and uses literature as a lens through it to sort of um, explore that relationship. Mm. Um, I guess that's not <laughs> yeah. an intro, I guess. Yeah, that was very comprehensive. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so just to begin, because mm. our season is about different spaces, yeah. I didn't specify on purpose because I was curious to see how you would answer, mm. but what spaces do you currently occupy and what privilege do you see yourself when you're in those spaces mm. well my I mean my thesis is is revolving around spaces so when I saw those questions they're so open as well the ones that you sent like <laughs> yeah so um there's so many ways I suppose that I would like to answer that um I suppose in terms of what spaces do I occupy um I suppose one thing to say is that I opt to study at home as opposed to within the the Jessup West building. Um, I don't know if that's of interest, but the the reason that I do it is because I prefer it not only as like a literal study space, is that um, because you have the freedom to sort of like walk around and and um, sort of operate how you want and it allows more creativity because you're not know, stifled by people watching you and stuff. Mm. Um, I also think that because, you know, I'm focused on architecture and on spaces, that when I'm in sort of an institutional, like a formal educational space, um, I can't help but notice the elements of it that are um, oppressive because I suppose as a, as a student of colour, um, perhaps more attuned to the elements of being in this building that are oppressive and the culture that mm. reigns here that um, isn't particularly uh, geared for facilitating free creative thought because you're too busy trying to traverse microaggressions, cultural mm. exclusion, yeah, <laughs> all those sorts of things, you know, like, um, and I've been here for a long time, so I've sort mm. of, I've experienced um, that culture for a while, so I, so I suppose in terms of the spaces to occupy, I don't really occupy Chester West, I study at home, um, <laughs> but um, I was interested by the question about the privilege that I bring to a space because, you know, mm-hmm. I've already said I'm a student of colour, but that aside, I I operate with a load of privilege. Um, I think the most obvious one is in terms of identifying as and being identified as a man, I think. It's, it's quite clear that that's mm-hmm. a privilege within a university space and obviously society generally. Um, I think I noticed it most when teaching, comparing my experiences to... Um, my friends who are women who taught um, as all of us PGRs and sort of the difference in the way we were perceived by students perhaps um, the sort of the authority we were given by students it felt like um, that felt particularly intense when talking to women of colour who were teaching mm-hmm. the distinctions um, between our experiences and stuff so I think it's very fair to say that that um, is one privilege um, that I operate with um, but another one that I've been thinking over a lot during my thesis, but just generally because I think it's a, it's a one that is perhaps not discussed as widely as it should be, 
is the fact that I haven't been rendered disabled by society and by the university, um, which I'm, I, there are so many premises that come from that, um, both within like, as a PhD student, for example, going to a conference, knowing that the space is going to be geared for me, that, I'll, that I will be free to manoeuvre in that space. Um, uh, which may prevent someone who has been rendered disabled by society, it might mean that they won't want to attend a conference or, or whatever and will miss out on that opportunity. And I'm sure there's so many other examples of when that happens without me even realising. Um, and so that I think that's definitely when I... And I think it's so pervasive with higher education, like the ableism of higher education, mm. um, that once you start reading into it and you start... Um, speaking to people who sort of specialise in the area, like I've been reading a book, Academic Ableism, for my own work, and it's so revealing about of all the facets that ableism touches when you're in university. Um, it's not just about, um, though this is important, like the sort of equipment that may not be made readily available, um, how seminar spaces may not be constructed um, for people that um, require certain technology, um, all those sorts of things. Um, and often, I think they speak about it in this academic ableism book, how it's then left to the student to sort of confront a lecturer who has the authority. So you're already in a disempowered position. It's up to the student still to go and, and say, perhaps, you know, I want this technology. Um, mm. Or um, I know cases where, like, um, students have wanted time out from a three-hour seminar because you need know, to go chill or rest, whatever and they've been denied it and all those mm. sorts of things and maybe they haven't gone on to the seminar the week after. All those sorts of things, you're missing out on opportunities, you're missing out on education. Um, there, there are so many examples and it's um, it's so revealing, as I say, when you get into that work. But So I would say not being rendered disabled by society mm. is another major one. Yeah, definitely. So you dove in depth into higher education yeah so what about other spaces within society how do you think you are in them or occupy them um it's, it's a really hard one to answer because everything i do pretty much revolves around um the university to be honest like um the thesis as everyone who will know who does it like it's so all-consuming um so and my actual the content of my work is higher education um the spaces that occupy outside of that are i suppose in sheffield now because i'm trying to um make uh, have some sort of impact with my work that goes beyond the circuits of academia i want to sort of have a positive impact on that sort of the local community which obviously is sheffield and I've been given a few opportunities to work on, on different projects where I've been able to sort of go into the community with resources where I can where I can reach out to those who I've maybe met at different conferences or, or just through um, other events and say, you know, we have either this money or we have these different types of resources available. Would you be interested in um, teaming up and putting on some sort of event? That, um, I suppose, new role that I've developed over the last six or nine months has meant I've started to go into new spaces within Sheffield that I hadn't been to in the last seven years of living here, um, just existing within that student bubble. Um, 
and suffering for it because um, in just those six to nine months of branching out a bit, I've been exposed to so much more in Sheffield. Um, it's been such an enriching sort of experience um, going to even things that people would would have probably gone to as an undergrad, but I never did. Things like Theatre Delhi, I've, I've gone to mm. quite a lot and been to uh, Christmas events there, but also um, I went to a spoken word performance mm. there. Got to the showroom frequently. I've worked with Sedaka. Um, I've I've gone to town hall meetings and things like that. So, I, and and with that, obviously, you meet people that you would never have normally encountered once yeah. you're in the academic bubble. Yeah. Um, and and I think mainly realizing that people are doing a lot of works on social justice stuff um, that the university is not aware of. Yeah. Um, but they're doing the work. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, and I think. Whilst I mean, I've already, I hope I like to think that I've known this for a long time, and I'm now acting upon it. But it does make you, it does reinforce the fact that where university can sometimes think that it's it's the one doing all this social justice stuff and it's at the forefront and whatever. There's plenty of organisations and people that are actually spearheading things. Yeah. And I think it's for the university to realise that they need to really support those organisations in the community as much as possible. Mm. Um, but always keeping in mind that it's for them to follow and not to lead, which I think is where the university is at times um, not quite delivered as it should, though there are obviously loads of examples um, where there have been really like fruitful relationships built. So basically I would say that's something that's come out of me operating in these new spaces mm. in Sheffield. And certainly, like, where once I was maybe thinking of leaving the city, I think it's really made me want to stay because mm. there's so much work, I feel, that can be done from my end where I think I can support um, what's going on, already going on in the city. And I'm, I'm like, quite excited to be doing that. So mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you mentioned how the university needs to be informed about the work, but not necessarily... Lee definitely mm. support but one thing to mention that i just think it's more pragmatic increasingly mm. is that uh as you may have noticed too students are constantly being relied upon yeah but we have to remember students are here to learn their yeah. main job is not to tackle down microaggressions and racism and other edi issues mm. um but one thing that I keep hearing in meetings and whatnot is always, oh, yeah, we're okay to support. Why don't you, as an admin or another student of color, design the framework and yeah. write the proposal and then do all of this? So that being said, because that's certainly a challenge, like what challenges do you think are unique to you as a male person of color within higher education or in any space? Do you mean challenges that I face or, or the, the challenges that my privilege uh, brings down other people, would you say? Uh, because challenges, just challenges as a, as a man, yeah. I don't suppose there's, there's all that money, that's the very nature of the privilege, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I, my challenges, I would say, come more um, as, as identifying as and being identified as a person of colour. Um, I think within that, though, something I'm 
again, I've been thinking about for a while, but I'm certainly more attuned to more and more as I read and think about it, is sort of um, colorism um, and and also anti-blackness as as a sort of a framework that I think is underexplored and not talked about that much because um, obviously I, I introduced myself as a student of colour several times but it's more specific and I should say that I'm a non-black student of colour because um, anti-blackness as a, as a framework points out that uh, systematic racial oppression starts out with uh, blackness being used um, as sort of at that the bottom rung of, of a ladder or whatever you would want to conceive of it. Um, and that's the system of racial privilege is sort of um, based on the objectification, um, alienation of black people first and foremost. And then that sort of then leads, then there's people of colour somewhat in the middle and then whiteness at the top. Mm. And there's a history though of, of people of colour who are non-black mm. sort of utilising their proximity to whiteness to sort of reinforce the subjugation of black mm. people um, so in terms of so going back to challenges I don't suppose that there's much challenges as a man I face it's um, can more of you actually say that <laughs> I'm just kidding um, yeah I don't I can't I don't know what you I mean I, I suppose <laughs> Challenge, but I suppose the way I'm, I'm conceiving the question is is com- compared to a, a woman or, or um, someone who identifies as non-binary or something like that, where one of the obvious answers is that they don't face any more challenges than those other groups. But um, I suppose perhaps you could say that in terms of um, mental health we're, amongst men, obviously it's a very prevalent issue at the moment and a real one, and that's not something to be ignored at all. Um, and I think you can have that conversation and look into that without suggesting that um, men are in some way less privileged or empowered than, than women or non, non-binary people. I think sometimes the problem when people say that, when men say that, is because it's sort of used as an argument against the idea that women and non-binary people are more um, pressed. It's like, well, but men and mental health. So um, it's used to sort of dismantle that previous argument but they can both coexist I think mm. um, it's absolutely true that men mental health because of yeah. um, you know toxic masculinity is the phrase that's, that's, yeah. that's used at no, the moment absolutely. Um, and there's absolutely something to be said like even with my friendship group um, the difficulty that some of them have with expressing like what's going on with them um and then when they when they do sort of the relief that's quite clear um it's 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 frightening actually because you realize that they've been holding it in for all this time um and but but were unable they felt to express it because of their own code of masculinity that they operate under i think that's a very very real issue i can't say that it feels like one that's particularly affected me but it's definitely an issue that is something that is experienced by men yeah. Um, but I just what I don't agree with is the idea that it then that dismantles somehow the the idea that men are still structurally positioned in a position of power like that that's still true mm. um, yeah I think oh sorry go ahead no no that's, that's all I had to say I mean one potential answer is if I'm thinking about my group of friends and how I would try and approach that 
is to my understanding of the issues that my that my my male friends face um and the reasons why they struggle perhaps to express the issues that they feel stems from um Toxic masculinity now doesn't feel like enough of a doesn't feel like a strong enough yeah. term to talk about this. Yeah. But the the idea behind toxic masculinity, I think, is is what it is. It's the ideals of masculinity. So, um, that that is impossible to sort of live up to. I suppose when I try and approach them, I talk. I I. I think a way to address that is to talk about um, like patriarchy, um, as another you know big concept in the system, because if you're addressing patriarchy, if you were to dismantle patriarchy, then I suppose you would then undo a lot of the issues that my male friends are facing mm. and that's affecting their mental health because they wouldn't have to prescribe to these certain ideals. But you would have also um, changed the system whereby women and non-binary people are systematically oppressed at all levels. Mm. So... It, yeah, is is I mean on a day to day, what do you do? Um, truthfully, with my friends, I try and take it on a case by case um, level, but I like to think that any time I would engage with them on these sort of societal issues and we talk about mental health, that the issue of patriarchy mm. and that sort of um, imbalance of power would never be away from my comments or advice or whatever mm. um i suppose when you're close to people well you well not always actually but with my friendship group i've now got into a position where i'm able to sort of honor how they're feeling talk about their mental health um and then perhaps not right in the moment but at another time like i i would then also stress and highlight that the issue underpinning that is patriarchy which requires then attending to issues that women and non-binary people are facing um, and emphasising that you know, if we focus on that, then the issues that you're talking about will also mm-hmm. be um, you know, lessened, I suppose, or reduced. It's always ongoing, though, isn't it? Like, they're your friends, but it's still exhausting. It takes a mental it's, toll. It's really, really, really tiring, and yeah. I suppose I feel calmer when I talk about it now than I did three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Particularly, I, mean, I suppose, g- gender being a massive, actually, um, topic of discussion amongst us, but also race. Um, mm. And, you know, obviously, I suppose, with a lot of friendship groups and a lot of families around um, Brexit, when Brexit first became a thing and whatever, um, that was challenging, I, I think, in a way I've never experienced before in terms of how mm. to manage my close relationships with people, because constantly having these conversations and constantly feeling like the frustration that um yeah. what you feel to be true and and so self-evident um was so actively denied and then because it was denied it was acted upon in a way that you just felt was worsening the problem you were trying to highlight and it was like yeah so frustrating on so many levels and, yeah. and i fell out with friends um or at least it became more distant mm. and it took quite a long time to sort of try and reconnect um and that hasn't worked with everyone but that's fair um i don't know like i suppose with my my really cl- i'm talking about my really close friends mm. and my family i've been more eager to put in that work i suppose and never get yeah. as tiring as it in though 
back in that those times, I was probably trying to have these conversations with everyone, yeah. and con- and go to all these conferences and give as many talks yeah. as I could, or just enter discussions, maybe online though, not don't massively like tweet or anything, but um, <laughs> I would try because I was I was like, as you're saying, we need to engage with those who perhaps are in the privileged position because without them, how are you supposed to change anything? Right. But I I felt the I suppose the emotional labor that you're talking about that comes of there started to make me think over a long period of time this is and it obviously affects people much worse than it's affecting me and and I was feeling bad um but with that being said then I was like well what is it actually worth me sacrificing my um well well, my mental health I suppose you could you could call it Mm. um to try and talk to everyone about these issues and face the same sort of reactions and stuff. It's an issue that in ra- in a racial context, I think people of colour, particularly women of colour, have talked about, and particularly um, black women have talked mm-hmm. about loads. Like, though Rennie Lodge obviously has, like, a best-selling book mm-hmm. um, about race, her introduction talks about her frustration and, her, and just her tiredness of having the same conversations and being ignored constantly mm. when trying to discuss race yeah. and she she sort of decided to not talk about it again um this was on her blog and then she came back to write the book but i think that sort of encaptures the, the real conflict because if you you feel like if you withdraw then all the issues that you see on a societal <laughs> level and then like on a more interpersonal level yeah. will just be allowed to reign free and you never really feel like you can detach yourself from it yeah. Um, and I think that book really captures that conflict. Mm. Um, I imagine it's most people who try to engage in social issues mm-hmm. feel like that. Yeah. Um, so it is a, it's a really difficult one, knowing mm. when to enter, I suppose we're talking about spaces, when to enter into a space and when to leave that space alone. Yeah. But I also think it's important, whilst I think there's a perhaps a growing notion that um, these spaces should include those in a privileged position because they need to also do the work. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for cultivating spaces where it's not where those same people aren't allowed and obviously the idea of a safe space has somewhat been uh co-opted a bit and I think basically the essence of it has been removed, I, I think. It's become uh it's become politicized by institutions and it's been nullified to some extent Mm. um but what i'm talking about i suppose would once have been on the idea of a safe space where people who come from the same sort of demographic or face the same sort of disempowerment can come together and just feel more comfortable to talk about the issues that they're facing um and to sort of collectively heal without feeling that at any moment someone from a privileged position is going to make them feel vulnerable and unsafe or enact violence um, mm. within whatever space we're talking about, which is a genuine fear, particularly in you know institutions like um, the university. Mm. You you go to a conference, and even a conference on race, and even a conference on race that's directly addressing what would be called probably BME issues, you would still get people in that, those rooms mm. who take up space by either arguing that the issues being talked about aren't real or by platforming themselves and talking about their position within it all 
um, and really taking precious time away from those who, when they operate in universities, are often very alienated from other... I mean, I'm talking about race, so other people mm. of colour, really. Yeah. Um, so uh, they're, they're really important spaces, and my university experience was so enriched by being able to access those. Um, I went to... There was a network called CREN, um, and they did a series of workshops over the years um, that I was doing my PhD, and it was so invaluable because they created that sort of what you could call a safe space. And not only that, when they were in that, they sort of, they really overtly discussed the power positions that were operating at the time and and made us feel even more comfortable because we knew that those organising were going to basically protect the space and make sure that people yeah. were always aware of the, the social power that they had. Um, and it really allowed for some interesting, insightful conversations and a lot of... Um, a lot of bonding, a lot of healing. I met a lot of great people there that um, like I hold in the highest academic esteem, but beyond that as well, in terms of people, some are like the warmest, most generous people mm. you're going to meet. And I think it's because of the space allowed those relationships to grow. Mm. Um, and it was a really good template for how I would want to create space for myself. Like if I'm running a conference now or an event, I take the template established by Cren and try and think how will it work in here. Mm. Um, and often it involves really trying to think who's going to be allowed into the space. Um, and it's a complicated issue because um, there, are, there are also reasons why you wouldn't want to exclude anyone, of course. And people want, people are always thinking about that, even when they decide to make it um, exclusive to one particular demographic mm. or whatever. It's not that they haven't considered the issues of making it exclusive but it's like um but often they'll have their very viable and justifiable reasons i think yeah it depends who the gatekeeper Ex- yeah is too. it does massively depend on the, on who the gatekeepers are yeah. um and and the power that's at play like um because gatekeeper implies power i suppose um and it would be very different if a lecturer like a white lecturer at university was to exclude certain people mm-hmm. um than if it was somebody else like the Cren network for example yeah um so yeah all of that but that that does require a certain engagement with the issues mm. that we're talking about and if you don't have that sort of um knowledge and understanding which can come from anywhere it doesn't have to come from academia come from anywhere but if you don't have it then mm. you're likely to maybe misunderstand or not appreciate why certain yeah. spaces are made to be exclusive so yeah so when I enter a space, like mm. you, you mentioned, um, it depends who the gatekeeper is, but that being said, it's really important um, that you have a base understanding of what the talk will be about. Mm. So I went to a particular meeting and it was an open invitation, but it was very explicit. You need to have an understanding of race. Here are the definitions of how we um, define race, ethnic groups, blah, blah, blah please be prepared, we will discuss race. Mm. So lots of um, people of color were sharing their stories, it was quite powerful. And then this white woman was just mm. got up and I hate being stereotypical, but you know, she was just like, I feel like you guys are all racist towards white people. And I thought, are you joking? I am shutting up and listening 
giving trying to give my undivided attention to my fellow people of color because yeah. this is what's important and you just interrupt a hijabi sister talking mm. to say your bit are you serious and this is this is when i start to realize because you brought up money's book which is fantastic everyone should read it though it is i couldn't read it in one go i don't know <laughs> if you um, could i didn't read it in one go i don't suppose but it's, it's a, quite accessible though isn't it? yeah um it's, it's split up into Fairly yeah, that's so that's take true. take your time with it. There's no need to rush. That yeah, kind of book. but um, I think emotionally, it's oh, of course, I need to look softer now. Yeah, yeah, de- if, yeah, definitely take your time in that in mm. that way. But yeah, everyone should read it, and then um, I'll just like finish up quickly. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh my god, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, but I think that book, the reason why it hit so many white people was that it wasn't a white person telling other white people, mm. and in this particular scenario. Um, a black facilitator went up to her and, you know, she just left. It's, which in this case, it's like, you know, we have similar beliefs. So when we're talking, you know, we're very, we're quite shocked when we meet people who are like, oh yeah, racism is good. Yeah. Um, less shocked as time goes on. <laughs> unfortunately. Oh my God, the political climate is another yeah. topic in itself. Yeah. But, you know, we need to engage. She came. There must be a reason why she came. But then she left. And I hope she didn't go off saying, like, oh, God, that group is so bad. People of color are so bad. And uh, but, I don't But know. I think some people don't come to those things to learn anything. I think they... I think it can be quite... Because on the other side, say, say this white person may have been enraged by the idea that this event was taking place may have been enraged by the idea of um, you talking, you platforming people of colour or discussing race in whatever way you were discussing it and maybe went there to vent and this is why as I said like these, these safe spaces that's why they come about to try and stop that sort of thing happening because I've been in so many situations even when we have made it exclusive a white person will turn up um, and you know you it's easy. It's easy when you're organising these things to make them exclusive because you, and you believe in the, the reasons as to why. But when, but then someone turns up, and you you don't want to turn anyone away, um, really. Like you don't rather yeah. not. And there's been times where, where I've then been in those events where, it's been massively curtailed, and it could be anyone in a, in a position of power, really. Like. Obviously, in in these more race orientated events, it's white people that often. How many times do you go to a conference and the first question that gets asked is a white person, <laughs> even though it could be a room full of quite a lot it's of people. True. Of color. Yeah. But, but it goes, it, but it's 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 connected to when I said about the um, my privileges as a male. How long have I been encouraged to provide my opinion, to talk, to feel comfortable expressing my opinion? Um, I think it's, it's similar with whiteness, like to take taking up space. Mm-hmm. Um, is so inherent to a white person is like well it's made to feel inherent but it's obviously been conditioned over like a long long time mm. so there's a so there is a not only the, an eagerness and a frustration that amongst white people to like that makes them want to talk but also it's inbuilt within whiteness itself obviously like White Fragility is another book that's really yeah. popular at the moment talks about all this sort of stuff but it massively curtails the events um, and stops, like, the conversation always falls short because those people often aren't really progressing the conversation. They bring it back all the way to square one. 
Um, and I remember we had a reading group here that had a very similar situation and we and it just stopped because we were like, we don't know how to navigate it. Yeah. We don't know how, we can't really make it exclusive because that will stop people from coming yeah. that we would want to come. Yeah. But at the same time, we can't afford to leave it just open because it gets curtailed in, in the, all these ways. So yeah. we, we stopped it. And that was then an opportunity oh. for further bonding or whatever, further discussion yeah. of issues that just didn't happen. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you asked the question or if I just... No, I mean, these types of things, like, there isn't a solid answer. It's, like, bouncing off. Um, well, I mean, in terms of, like, yeah, purging what emotions, there's, there's a lot being written on that now. Um, I think I think it said her name is pronounced Cheryl Matthias, perhaps. Oh, okay. Um, I think that's right. But I, I referenced her a few times in my, in my thesis, actually, because she talks about um, that very thing, about how um, white people's emotions are often privileged in, and this is why again when universities use have these initiatives and stuff um where i don't know it could be unconscious bias training or any sort of thing that tries to tackle what they would probably call diversity and inclusivity um often in those spaces it's white people who will sort of just want to foreground their perspective how it's making them feel um and even it won't even be as um, rationalised as that. It will just be literally frustration will be very clear from tone. Mm. It will make other people in the room feel uncomfortable um, or they can dwell in guilt. All those things that are, are quite common and we've all probably seen and experienced before. Um, so, that, so there's a lot of stuff written on that. And I suppose the friendships that I strike up, I think are with people that would would allow for a conversation about race, mm. even if it gets difficult. Um, I don't think you can avoid... Sometimes you don't say anything. And I think it would be it would be disingenuous of me to suggest that every time an issue, a complex issue of race comes up, that with a white person, say, that I've asserted myself as much as I would have in a different instance. Um, though I try to do it as much as possible, um, Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you just, for whatever reason, you're tired mm. or not in the mood or whatever. Um, but it depends on the context because sometimes you just have to. Like, whilst I'm, I'm sort of foregrounded that, um, as being a person of colour that I don't have a certain privilege, but as we've also sort of touched upon, within what has been classed as BAME, which is obviously an awful sort of label, because it excises, like, the differences between people of colour uh, the systematic differences in terms of power within that sort of subset I'm very privileged so I, I and I'm mixed race as well so that's another I think um, privilege so I don't think I have as much reason to not engage in those conversations as others personally um, mm. so whilst I perhaps don't engage as wildly as I once did I try not to disengage too much because I think at the same time I have to be my my position of relative privilege within that um, BME group um, means that I sort of have to talk a bit more mm. and I have to um, challenge certain positions that are put mm. forward, particularly as, as well if you're in a conversation which may have um, a black person in there or or, or a woman of colour. Mm. You it is on me then to um, challenge and not leave it up to anybody else. Um, so 
but again, it's sometimes a case by case situation. I don't think that there's a there's not a template for how you would deal with those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and it's really and it can be really complex, which is why like, I don't. Going back to the very first question, I just don't study it here because, um, I don't have to face it as much when I'm uh, at home or mm. at all really. Unless unless I go on social media, I can mm. avoid I can avoid it. I can get on with my mm. own work. It's so distracting. Mm. Um, and that's something that's come up again recently with you know, politics and everything. Like people online just saying like, remember, I think it was Tony Morrison who talked about these issues. It's just a distraction for the real stuff that's also going on. That's the real sort of disempowering, mm. oppressive stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean this bit um, wanky to, to cite Tony Morrison and then Audrey Lord, but. <laughs> I, I have just been reading her, her memoir, I guess you'd call it, and yeah. she talks about how in the 50s, like, her struggle to negotiate these conversations with white women who were either friends or she was dating or whatever, um, and, and the fact that they just could not see her perspective as a black woman and that it meant she couldn't have certain conversations and they had to, that she could only have them with other black women. And these could be her best friends. So I think that, I mean, that just goes to show that this is nothing new that we're facing. Mm. I wonder if perhaps it, because maybe racial groups have mixed together a bit more, it happens on, on a more, more of a constant basis. But yeah. I, I don't really know. I don't know if that's the case. But um, but yeah, but so it's, it's not a new issue. No. And probably the answers aren't that new either, really. Yeah, I mean, it is complicated. I'd like to remain hopeful, though. Uh, so, <laughs> not to be cliche, but what is what are your tips mm. for navigating through different spaces? And it's like you said, it could be like going from home to like uni or like within your job or within your different friend circles because mm. I think a lot of us do have like a white friend group and then yeah you know yeah um I mean the question of hope isn't is a well the idea of hope I think is an interesting one because I I try I don't always end on a note of hope to be honest like I mean obviously I'll, I'll give some suggestions or whatever but um <laughs> only because so I did this same thing for my thesis actually and like generally just how I go about my day to day I sometimes question the, the need to end on a note of hope because I think it's very much like the um, desire for a, a, uh, just a conclusion like just a, a bow on the end of whatever and that's a question that gets asked and then but it's such a dire situation. I think it's okay to say that there isn't, that at the moment, doesn't feel like there's much hope. Um, I think there's a ways to navigate a situation and improve things for yourself personally and, and also societally. Um, in terms of what would I recommend, uh, in a PhD space, I would definitely say, if you're talking about a student of colour, it would be form, try and form groups uh, with like-minded people, uh, preferably ideologically, uh, similar because not everyone who's a person of colour is going to agree with you ideologically yeah. as we well know 
now. For, mm. Well, we should have always known, but we certainly know now. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, and try and form those um, groups, whether it be through like a network like the Crane Conference, um, or just through an informal sort of group of friends, you know, whatever. But something that's sort of distinct from uh, the university space that allows you to sort of just share these experiences and trying to collectively uh, work out the difficulties of being in these quite oppressive spaces. Mm. Um, I, I think having those sorts of external um, relationships and groups is, is really important and probably important to everyone, but certainly as a student of colour, I think trying to trying to meet other people of colour and stuff who are, again, ideologically minded and whatever, um, that's really important. Um, uh, I think disengaging, no, trying to learn when to disengage yeah, that's a good one. is quite, I've learned that over time, as I've said, like, and, and just, and not putting yourself, trying to put yourself into a position where you're going to face, um, more violence than you need to. Mm. Um, but of course the problem with that suggestion though is that means you don't go for certain things that other students are going to and then you're losing an opportunity and that's a problem. So you hope that whilst you're trying to look after yourself in that way that the institution is then doing something to make those spaces more uh, inclusive and comfortable mm. for you because that, that can't be the end goal that we just say we're going to just not go to certain things or not engage in certain things because we're protecting ourselves. That's important for the immediate, but for the long term, that means your CV won't look as strong or you might not have networked with certain people because you didn't want to go to that place. Um, but I do think learning that, um, learning how to navigate social media, I think as well, is something I'm really trying to think about at the moment, like trying to, the balance between it being very useful and really great for meeting like-minded people or, or people that are working on similar things where you could maybe team up and work on events together and collaborate and all that yeah. sort of stuff is great. Yeah. But then the exposure to these um, daily conflicts that the more I think you invest yourself in social justice and whatever, the more it really frustrates you and it really can destabilise you and distract you from your day. Um, yeah. It's like, it's very difficult to get catch that balance. Um and but so I maybe just at least being conscious of the fact that there is a balance to be to be to be struck to to try and attempt to strike it, I think that's a key one. Um, you know, you've you've shared your tips. I'd like to believe that someone will listen to it and pitch their own, and it sort of not a template, but I guess will be closer to achieving a template Absolutely, of yeah. oh, this is what we can do. And I yeah. know, listen, like I know, it's really hard to be. Positive, but, but no, I, I no, but I think I think you're exactly right in talking about um, trying to still affect positive change. I think the reason why I balk a bit at the concept of hope is because how it can be then used and co-opted, and um, I think it it makes what can be quite a in different spaces perhaps. Like say you went to a conference um, which was held by the institution, and they asked you to end on a note of hope. I find often what happens with that then is that it almost does it then uh, not undermine what they've said before but I, but it makes it seem as if it's not as urgent perhaps because you're like well there is you know 
it will be okay in the end sort of thing. Mm. But I think you're absolutely right. Like the idea of trying to energize, to be in, to find energy and not everyone can. Mm -hmm. So if you can find energy, then that's great. But then in terms of trying to energize others, I think is so important. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't mind operating from a place of ho like hopelessness because <laughs> I think it's still important to, and there's so many like um, thinkers and artists and academics who talk, who talk like this. Um, that it can actually be a very generative space because you can feel very cynical, but that doesn't stop you from making recommendations for trying to help other, yeah. like mentor other people or whatever. Um, and and I think actually, they mentioned podcasts. That have been really. I don't. I've only got into it recently, but like listening to podcasts. But the few that I've listened to, um, I found them really um, inspiring and energizing. Um, not just even the conversations that they that have um, that they have on them, though that has been the case, but even just the prospect that they're doing something and 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 facilitating the conversations, yeah, exactly. I found quite energizing as a sort of the because I I find with the thing with the PhD sometimes you feel like your work's not counting for much, like <laughs> no one's really reading it, um, it's not it's not having the impact that you would want. And I think I was, I felt really stifled by that thought for a long time. And that's where, that's where hopelessness really took over because I was like, well, what's the point? I don't, this is not really helping anyone, but podcasts, they seem, um, you, you can start them up whenever you want, can't you? Really? So you now have a platform where you can share your ideas, bring other people mm -hmm. in and affect these sort of communities and these networks. And I really like that sort of, sort of grassroots yeah. feel of them. And that's really inspiring. And in fact, when I was saying earlier about wanting to do more in Sheffield, mm. uh, me listening to those podcasts had a, had a direct effect on that because it made me think, well, I can use my background in literature and research because um, I listen to a lot of literary podcasts. Mm. I can use that to do something that's going to have more of a, uh, a mass audience. Um, it doesn't have to be a podcast, but it could be, that could be an example of what it, what it is. Yeah. Like. Um, I don't know, but yeah, so I think podcasts are, are it took me a while to get onto it, but it, I think they're really, really great. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love YouTube. I love um, being able to have that direct access yeah. and the idea that you can just start it up yourself. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. Slightly biased, but... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, agree. of course. But. Um, so this is what we ask everyone before we end, but how do you relax? Um, oh, God, now you can see how boring I'm like. Um, <laughs> I read. I like. I just read. Um, That's not boring. I, I read in. I read. I mean, this is the luxury at the moment of um, being in that halfway stage between the submission and having the viva. Mm. I'm not that pressed for time, so I just I read in the morning. Mm. I read at some point in the oh, afternoon. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and I read in the evening, like, yeah. and I find it really relaxing because um, I know everyone does. Um, I know, but in a way that I don't feel relaxed when I watch. I don't feel relaxed when I watch film. Or TV, even though people do. Um, when I read a book, I feel really, really hyper relaxed. So I do. I try and do that every day if I can. Mm. Um, and yeah, that would probably be my main one to be honest. Chilling with friends, but that's not everyone. Everyone does that. As yeah. as tries to. Those um, are great. Yeah, but definitely like when I was doing my PhD, like. I tried and it didn't always work, but you can get into that habit of like working Monday to Sunday. Yeah. And I really tried that 
I would take the weekend off to relax and that would be the plan because you you, you do enough work Monday to Friday mm-hmm. um, or however else you, you may manage your week but to have a day and really two days off is the bare minimum I think of a, yeah. a PhD student should be striving Sounds for like it, yeah. um, and that's and like a bare minimum um, so I really really try to do that and so and within that time yeah reading maybe going to the cinema um, which I find much more relaxing than watching TV mm. at home for whatever reason and telling my friends like I think that is that's all I do really outside yeah. of working. So sounds relaxing to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, on that note, thanks for cool. being on the podcast. Thank you.